0: on Outcast UK. So they
1: were too scared to meet in any public place. They used to meet around each other's houses. They all had an AIDS diagnosis um, and they were all absolutely petrified about what the future held. This is
0: Outcast UK. This
2: episode is an important one for me. I was tying myself in knots about how to do this episode. I was like, got to get a big name, got to give it the, the justice it deserves. And then it literally came to me a couple of weeks ago in November. I'm not going to make a big deal of it because there's already been enough drama around HIV. I'm going to chat to community figures from two UK HIV charities and actually just try and put stuff into perspective in a conversation. If you've listened to this podcast this far, all the way through, I'm sure you probably already know someone with HIV. And if you're the kind of person I think you are, then you will have been glad that they told you. Right then, where's that terrifying advert from the 1980s to set the tone? There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it, man or woman. So don't die of Ignorance. In the early 1980s, reports of a strange new disease began emerging from the United States. It was picked up in the British gay press. Gay news ran a story in November 1981 with the headline, Gay Cancer or Mass Media Scare. But relatively few people noticed. Even among those who did, confusion and doubt reigned. went these tales of a gay cancer just fear-mongering? A backlash against the gains of the fight for gay liberation in the 1970s. And how could a disease just target gay men?
0: A mystery disease
1: known as the Gay Plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. Topping the list of likely victims are male homosexuals who have many partners and drug users who inject themselves with needles.
2: The medical profession had a difficult history with people who didn't conform to what we'll call heterosexual norms. Less than 10 years earlier, homosexuality had still been categorised as a mental disorder. And when it came to AIDS, the lack of knowledge about its cause, mode of transmission, just led to wild speculation. There was a theory linking AIDS to the use of poppers, which you'll know what they are. By July 1983, when I would have been three months old, there'd been 14 reported cases of AIDS in Britain, all among men. Most were gay, including one man who also injected drugs, but the group included another who'd been receiving treatment for haemophilia in the form of blood products. As numbers of diagnoses in the UK started to rise, the deaths began.
3: They were actors, teachers, scientists,
2: bartenders, and they were those who never had a chance to be anything.
3: In the end, they were all victims of AIDS. And I'm just wondering how certain that medical evidence is that the virus can't be transmitted in schools as much as a common cold can be.
2: Many people died very soon after diagnosis as an array of opportunistic infections took advantage of their weakened immune systems. Terence Higgins died in July 1982, one of the first deaths in the UK attributed to AIDS. His partner, Rupert Whittaker, recalled asking doctors whether his disease could have been caused by this strange American disease, but he was dismissed out of hand. He wasn't family, so they couldn't tell him anything. It wasn't until a few years later that he found out that they expected him to die soon too. 399 out of 400 died. We had nothing for the underlying disease. His friends joined Whitwicker and they set up a trust in his name to provide information and education in this information vacuum and to provide support and services for people affected by AIDS. In these early frightening years, charities such as the Terence Higgins Trust and George House Trust in Manchester led the charge Men and women had begun to see the impact of this disease firsthand. As well as fundraising, they gathered and they shared the latest information. They looked abroad for insights from countries with more advanced epidemics. Volunteers and activists also campaigned for accurate media coverage and government attention. They ran phone lines and community centres to provide counselling and advice. Charity and community was at the core of how we responded to the HIV epidemic.
0: This is the UK's hottest LGBTQ plus podcast. Our- UK. So I'm Jess Harding um, and I've been at TVPS for 14 years now. Um, I'm the deputy CEO but I started out This is Jess
2: and Sarah. um, They're perfect examples of people working for a a charity right now whose life's mission is eliminating HIV uh, stigma. They work for Thames Valley Positive Support support in in Berkshire and they also host a podcast called The HIV Podcast.
1: I'm Sarah McAdam, I'm the CEO of TVPS. I have worked there for nearly 20 years now. Um, And as Jess said, I worked in a completely different sector before moving. Uh, So I used to work for an advertising agency. Once I started working there and I realised that the challenges that people with HIV face um, and the sector faces, that kind of really grabbed my attention. Um, And that's why I stayed so long, because I think we're not quite there yet in terms of addressing lots of issues around HIV. There's a lot more work to be done TVPS is stuck with both of us, really, and until we've completed our mission to normalise HIV.
2: Do you want to give us a little bit of a history of the organisation and how you came about? Okay.
1: So TVPS started in um, the early 80s. And initially, it's, uh, it was a group of gay men uh, who were met secretly. So they were too scared to meet in any public place. They used to meet around each other's houses. They all had an AIDS diagnosis um and they were all absolutely petrified about what the future held and the group kind of grew and grew um and they could no longer meet in each other's houses because there just wasn't enough room they started to look for somewhere um bigger uh, and they decided some uh, room in the sexual health clinic would work for them and they established tvps in 1985 so they made, that's when they made it into a formal charity uh, and since then it's just grown and grown so what started as a support group for people um, living with HIV or sadly at that time dying from AIDS uh, has grown to awareness raising HIV testing um, and covering now a much larger area um, of the Thames Valley hence the name Thames Valley Positive Support Uh, but I think we're still firmly um, kind of rooted in the fact that we're there primarily to support people who are diagnosed with HIV. (laughs)
2: No patient has ever recovered from AIDS. AIDS is remorseless. It cripples the immune system, produces cancer and often brain disease. We never thought it was going to spread this rapidly because this kind of virus is difficult to transmit. Yet it, it is. We never expected a high degree of fatality with this virus. The percentage of people infected who get seriously ill is high and growing. I don't know what the ultimate number is going to be. It could be 100%. It could be everyone infected is going to have a serious illness with this virus.
0: Most AIDS victims die within two years of one infection or another. Well, Obviously the attitudes in the 80s were... Not great, as we know, but I think, we, you know, we've done a couple of episodes on the podcast around the Don't Dive Ignorance campaign.
2: The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person.
0: And that had a massive impact on, on the attitudes, because obviously that's the information that people had to go on. Um, so, yeah, there was tons of stigma. And I think that stigma from then, we talk about it a lot, but has carried over to the present day. I think people still remember those campaigns. They still hold that fear. Um, and I think, as Sarah said, for TVPS back in the eighties, they weren't we weren't doing tons of awareness raising because it was just about meeting up and supporting each other. But moving forward now, we're really trying to tackle stigma, and, as lots of other organisations are, and these attitudes um, by yeah through things like the podcast. But although we have moved on, there's still there's still way too much stigma, you know.
2: But do you think the biggest single issue uh, is that you face as an organisation today? in 2022?
0: Um, Funding
1: cuts, I would say, I think uh, like all charities, we're um, finding it difficult to source new funding. Um, We we used to have a lot of local authority funding, um, and that's gradually been reduced over the years as their budgets have been cut from central government. So we have to operate on less money, but there's higher demand. So more people in our area are being diagnosed with HIV, especially now that we've come out of the pandemic. And people are starting to get into the habit of testing again. Um, Fundraising is difficult. People don't have the money that they used to have because of the cost of living crisis. Um, And I think, you know, our biggest challenge is we're having to do more and more. We want to do more and more. And yet we're also having to turn our attention to sourcing funding to do that. Um, And I think, as Jess said, there's still all the issues Around stigma. I don't think COVID kind of helped anyone's attitudes towards viruses in general. So we're having to combat yeah. that. There's no national campaign from the government um, to kind of change people's attitude. Uh, a lot of people still refer to those adverts in the 80s, and that's why the stigma's still there. But we have U equals U now. Undetectable means you're untransmittable. That message needs to get out there because it will reduce the fear that people fear well, today's living with HIV. And at the moment, I don't think it's getting out there as much as it could do.
2: No, I'd agree, um, certainly not amongst the general population. I mean, just among the LGBTQ community, sometimes awareness of you equals you is not as good as it could be. And something that um, I hear said sometimes, and I've heard said is, oh, right, you equals you, that's all well and good, but is it really? And would you take the risk? And that's often something that gets said to people. Yeah. Do you hear this?
1: Absolutely, yes. It's really difficult. We support our service users a lot around um, disclosing their HIV status, particularly to new partners, because like you say, there's a lot of mistrust about whether that person is actually telling the truth. So we've had people who said, well, you have to prove it then. If you're definitely undetectable, get the get the status from the doctor or from the clinic and, and prove it to me before I sleep with you. And that's so difficult um, and so unfair, really. You know, this U Equals U, I think we, we talk about this in our podcast. It was a game changer for people living with HIV.
4: News 5's Homer Bash is here to explain what it all means. The U Equals U campaign. It means that people living with HIV who take their medication and maintain an undetectable viral load cannot transmit the virus. The knowledge backed by
1: science is a game changer. We did a mini series over the summer about HIV and crime, and it focused on reckless and intentional transmission. The reason we picked that as a topic was because so many service users in the past have been told that if they pass HIV on to anybody else, they will go to prison. Now, that's not the case if you've taken reasonable steps. Either you're undetectable because you're taking your HIV medication or you're using a condom.
2: Is that considered to be a reasonable step then? You've taken your HIV medication that's if you're undetectable,
1: you can't pass the virus on to anybody else. So that is the reasonable step that you need to take. If you're detectable and you use a condom, again, that's a reasonable step to take. That condom splits, you can't then be held responsible because you've taken reasonable steps to ensure you didn't transmit the virus. And the kind of series over the summer looked at people who've been prosecuted for HIV transmission and why they were prosecuted. Um, And it also looks at the press attitude because the press sensationalised stories like this and it's always portrayed in a negative light. And we wanted to to address that. And so, yes, some people have intentionally infected other people um, for whatever reason and they've gone to prison for it, but that doesn't mean everyone with HIV needs to be vilified. Um, and that's hopefully what we addressed over the, the course of that six-episode series. Um, certainly the kind of response we got, the public response was, was excellent and service user response course.
2: But they're a bit biased. Almost relief in my voice when I was talking to Jess and Sarah then. And that's because, and I've only just kind of realised this recently, many people like me were carrying this overarching sense of shame and you don't realise it was there until it's gone. And, Who can blame us for feeling like that? With coverage like this?
0: Daryl Rowe arriving at court this morning, ready to take the stand for the first time. A
1: nasty, angry individual who carried out a cynical campaign.
2: He deliberately infected his gay lovers with HIV. In our crime
0: series, we really explored um, how difficult it would be to prosecute someone. You know, you equals you means that you are taking those active steps and you don't have to disclose your status. I think that's a massive step forward, not having Mm -hmm. to say to people, yeah, you need to tell all your sexual partners. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. You're undetectable. You know, there's no need to disclose.
2: We've won. Uh, British Podcast Award, uh, this year just gone. Obviously, I was very proud of that. And I noticed that you were nominated as well, which was really good to see. Do you want to tell us a bit about the podcast I was having a listen. It's great.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So our podcast actually started way back in 2019. Um, and it was an idea from our service users, you know, in a way you can have it in your headphones, no one's seeing your phone. Um, so even mm-hmm. if people don't want to access support by coming to a centre like ours, you can listen to a podcast. So we started out by recording um, our service users, just having a chat with them, a bit like we would in the drop-in, so it was quite light-hearted. Um, and that, that went really, really well. But obviously we only had a certain amount of people that wanted to do it at the time. And we were like, right, how can we how can we basically try normal HIV as much as possible, diminish stigma, and you know, just get a whole load more HIV education out there? So we started picking different topics and different people that we either saw as HIV history or heroes where we knew a little bit, like Sarah was saying from the media sensationalism, but what actually Mm -hmm. happened, what's the real story behind all of those headlines and just a bit like with Charlie Sheen, you know, and the lambskin condom. We looked at that. Was that a real thing? It is, but you know, listen to the podcast for that. But anyway, so we've kind of gone on and on and we're like 54 episodes in now and we have so so many topics and it's become such a community where we invite people to give us the topics that they want us to cover so we'll go away do the research explore it and then do do an episode on it so we sort of want to give the truth behind those headlines you know share it with people because the more hiv educated people are the less stigma we're going to have and we know that stigma kills stigma is the thing that stops people from wanting to go and get an hiv test so then they don't know their status and they can't get their meds so just get HIV educated in any way that you can, but a great way to do it is listening to our podcast. I feel like I'd be like, right, our podcast is available on all major podcast <laughs> platforms. <laughs> I could just continue plugging. And you can find us on Instagram and TikTok. Yes.
2: What can people do to help your organisation as well, TVPS?
0: Uh, if they're local to
1: um, Berkshire or North Hampshire, if they want to volunteer, that is always very welcome. If they want to donate money, that's also very welcome these days.
0: Uh, anything else, Jess? Just, again, I'm just going to keep saying it. Just listening and sharing our podcast is amazing. It goes
2: without saying, and you can probably tell Eventually that I absolutely loved Jess and charity. Sarah. Thank you what you they're both. doing they're out you out you is brilliant. They believe it. They love it. And I wish there were more people like
3: them.
0: This is Outcast UK. All right,
3: so um, George just when we first set up, um, was in 1985, so 37 years ago. When TVPS we by... was first
2: set up in Berkshire back in 1985 when I was two years old 150 miles up north six gay HIV activists set up
3: Manchester AIDS line and that helpline was just so people could ring and just ask questions, get information and we'd have all sorts of people um, mums, partners worried well but also people who um, this is
2: Darren Knight and he's the CEO of the George House Trust in Manchester
3: Um, there was so much uncertainty around at the time that we just wanted to have a a response here in Manchester. Many people with HIV uh, report some negativity,
2: uh, some stigma in the workplace and in dating, this is historically. um, What have been your more recent experiences in a system with this?
3: So um, we've had quite a few people come through around work issues and we've been able to work with great organisations like National AIDS Trust on supporting people with that. On how they challenge it, and um, somebody who accessed support relatively recently at George House of Trust um, with a work issue and lost a job was successful in a case against the employer. Um, and that was really, really positive for them, I think, for them to be able to move on. Um, we hear about people in relationships all the time, whatever the type of relationship, um, about how that partners sometimes struggle, how that's sometimes weaponized. And we just give people the tools and the confidence in order to understand that that's not right and people shouldn't be, you know, kind of experiencing that. But just recently, in the last couple of months, we've had a a few cases of people being declined access to having tattoos done in tattoo parlours, for example. It's not right. Um, There's absolutely no need. Um, If you're following normal practice, there's no risk there. And so it's kind of just educating people. So we've recently written out to all tattoo parlours in great manchester um again we did it 5 years ago and sometimes we've realized recently that you can't take your finger off these kind of things you need to keep on with it educating um and um, it's been really well received by tattoo parlors and Has it? we fa- we found that some of them would have absolutely brilliant practices in And there's nothing better than peer leadership. So them taking a lead in communicating, putting across their socials about how they uh, open the door to anybody and what they do for people living with HIV and how it doesn't have to be treated differently. Just so so you know, to
2: refuse to tattoo or provide a cosmetic treatment to a person on the basis of their HIV status is illegal under the Equality Act 2010. 2010. What's your advice if someone is HIV positive and they're going to get a tattoo and there is that... There is that nervousness, isn't there, around disclosing your status and knowing how to deal with it. Um, what would you advise in that situation?
3: There's no legal requirement to disclose in that situation, but they're following the normal processes. There should be no issue there. Um, I think it's giving people the confidence to understand that they shouldn't be asking the question, really. It's actually the law in the UK
2: that registered tattoo artists and piercers practice universal precautions with all of their Um, clients, regardless of HIV status.
3: Why are you asking that question? What do you need to know it for? What is it that you're doing that you're asking that question for? Have you just got an old list out that you've just been following for time and memoriam? You know, actually, isn't it time that you trained up your staff and got used to the facts and kind of understood Why don't you slap a U equals U um, sticker on your website and proper get behind this and actually normalise life for people living with HIV and understand that the risk isn't there. I think it's that that we want to see, really. Take the onus off the person, really.
2: This is Anthony Fauci, one of the most famous doctors in the world, and he's director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and the chief medical advisor to the President of the United States.
4: U equals U. So if we accomplish
1: U equals U... If you think for a moment, what does that mean? That means we don't have anybody that's transmitting infection. So that's what I mean when I say that concept of U equals U
0: is the foundation of being able to end the epidemic.
3: There's an assumption of how simple it is because it's a beautiful, simple message, but people need to understand exactly that undetectable equals untransmittable and what that means is that you've got an undetectable amount of HIV in your body, you can't pass HIV on through sex. So we need to explain it sometimes because there's an assumption of knowledge because some people have more exposure to the message and I think that's something we've learned with people who access our support and what we need to do is build up more awareness of it so that more people know it. We know from um, national surveys that National Aid Trust ran um, last summer um, that um it's not well known across the general population. So what it does is give a kickback to organisations like George House Trust and all the other HIV organisations, sexual health organisations, to say, we've got to do more and reaching more people to help people understand this really, really positive message.
2: What about PrEP? How much do you think PrEP has changed the game when it comes to HIV prevention?
3: Well, I think if you were to look at the statistics and see um, the biggest declines in um, new diagnosis, particularly amongst gay and bisexual men, and that they're actually the biggest group of people accessing PrEP, that there's something in that for that mixed approach to prevention. So it's not just PrEP on its own, it's a number of different factors, you know, good sexual health messaging, good awareness of testing, all those different factors, it's part of the suite of things. But PrEP's a proper game changer, it's just a fact, isn't it? It's been an absolutely amazing tool. It's just how we make sure that PrEP is understood and accessed by everybody. You know, why do we need PrEP? And the answer is because so you don't catch
2: HIV. There is a but small minority of people who have a different opinion about um, PrEP, like the artist it, Liam can't Stoney MacDonald. If we took PrEP away, what do you think would happen? I think we'd see a lot of people actually taking um, the right actions and not being as reckless. Do you think that PrEP has encouraged some people to take more risks because this is an argument that has been put out there on social media more than anything else time and time again?
3: I think for me, if I'm really, really honest, how I see it is that PrEP is a tool for preventing HIV, and anybody who actually takes PrEP is looking after their own health. If somebody's in tune enough with their sexual health and aware of PrEP and is on PrEP, then they're going to be taking good all-round care of their sexual health in more general anyway, and I think that's a good thing. So I think as part of the armoring toolkit for good sexual health, then PrEP's absolutely brilliant. Okay. Um, It was great to speak to
2: Darren there uh, at George House Trust in Manchester. He's the chief executive. And the work that they do at George House Trust is incredible, breaking stigma and banging the drum for people with HIV, making all of the arguments that just a lot of us going about our everyday lives can't make all the time. If I'm honest, I've spent this episode as much asking these people questions for my own good as I have for you. Like for me... It was really reassuring, not just to hear the message of you equals you, but also about the removal of the criminality from people living with HIV that ask people, they felt, and organisations like George House Trust making the argument for something as simple as it being okay for people living with HIV to go and get something as simple as a tattoo. Like that was something that was really mentally holding a lot of people back. So it was really good to hear that. It's worth remembering that since the first AIDS outbreak in June 1981, there have been between 64.5 million and 113 million confirmed cases of HIV, and over 40 million people have died. Every year, at the end of the legendary Manchester Pride weekend, George House Trust holds a candlelit vigil on the bank holiday Monday evening, at the end of a weekend of celebrations to remember those who've gone before us and to show solidarity to those living with HIV today. This year, I thought was particularly special. There was a reading of the poem, This Quilted History, written and performed by Jane Mitra into a minute of silent reflection. And it was really powerful. So this World AIDS Day, I can't think of any better way to end this episode of Outcast UK. Thanks for listening.
4: Quilted history We owe so much to you who are determined to live To you who sold your friends names into quilted history Forged fabric from their favorite dress Who still went out dancing With the memory of him twirling diamante flashing as he moved a shooting star gone in a wink of an eye. I think of the way you sat at desks for hours, scrolling staccato stories of strangers' suspicions into logbooks. Your pen, a needle, threading the word worried through lined pages of people who feared blood transfusions of lovers forced into seclusion of hoax calls from the disillusioned who dubbed you darling with venom and hung up My fingers brush over the gentle indent your pen carved nearly 30 years ago New Year's Eve 1993 You'd written no calls A Happy New Year to all I smiled when I read that This phone logbook turned diary With a growing infrequency of worry I'm glad you celebrated the little victories In between writing your friends eulogies I think of you who were spat out from society like loose teeth Who cried so much for your chosen family, you had no tears left to weep Who decided to rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light And were battered with batons every time you tried to fight You who were bruised by a God of grace you who felt those books pelted at your face. We watch ghosts of the past slip silk-like into a show of love and death, sex treated like a sin. A young lad imprisoned in a place like Monsol rattles a locked hospital door We listen as those clicks echo in sterile corridors This story won TV awards But when a chief constable snarled the word cesspit There was truth behind the poignant script Patients became prisoners Cursed artifacts Skin marked with blotches of black. And some of you were familiar with a different kind of needlework. Had accidentally stitched something sinister into skin. It was, you say, a lucky setback. HIV hemmed the rough edges of a lifestyle that would have left you on the street. Others were never saved by it, but learned to live with medication embroidered into the fabric of their lives. The virus no longer meant saying premature goodbyes. At times you felt like you'd lost a place at the table, wrenched like cloth by some invisible magician but queer sedition had already paved away. They who snipped through stigma and shame so black and brown bodies could be woven back together the same. This quilted history is a rope thrown to those adrift in the sea. It leads them back to land and lets them live free. If you haven't already lit your candles, we'd now like to invite you to do that. So here we stand, candles threaded like gold sequins through our hands. Each flame glitters with diamante demands, Fires that bear the souls at rest somewhere Waltzing in the peace and quiet and open air This quilted history was never an ornament But a gift of warmth Love made permanent